1: and welcome to the food scene on heritage radio network i'm your host michael Harlan turkel taping here at robertas pizza.com in bushwick brooklyn first just like to thank our sponsor acme Smoke fish located in greenpoint brooklyn acme has been a mainstay in new york's culinary landscape for over 50 years using old world recipes acme produces the finest smoked salmon whitefish sable at discerning palates demand for more info where to find Acme, Blue Hill Bay, or Ruby Bay products, visit www.acmesmokefish.com. Um, I'd like to thank our guest today, Nancy Jenkins, and I'm saying that correctly? I mean, uh, Sarah Jenkins, big myth, and unfortunately we're live so we can't even edit that, and <laughs> Alex, R-A-I-J, say it for us? Right. You gotta get closer. Right. Right. Right of Chiquito Restaurant in Chelsea, in El Quinto Pino. And Sarah has Porchetta Restaurant in the East Village and about to open another one, correct?
2: Yes, called Porcena, also and on East 7th
1: Street. Right near McSorley's, you said. Right next one. And what Porchetta is to sandwiches, I'm sure this one will be to pastas. We
2: can only hope. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and then, I mean, Sarah is about a week or so, two weeks out. Two weeks, yeah. I'd say, two weeks Coming out. Coming close. So yeah. she, luckily enough, we were able to get her into the studios amid... The storm of trying to open up a restaurant. Um, I have these two lovely ladies on because what they do—Italian, Basque food. Um, well, one does Italian, one does Basque food—is very inherent, um, you know, to heritage, to upbringing, to travels, to you know, tastes throughout their life. But it's here in New York. There isn't a huge Basque community. Um, In one specific place, there is a large Italian community, but not necessarily of the types of cuisine that you cook. Um, So it's always interesting to see what is authenticity, whether or not it's importing, whether or not it's of terror or of, you know, inherently where you're sourcing locally, sustainably, etc. And I think the two of you have both really triumphed. Your you know personal cuisines and flavors and inspirations from both Basque and Italian cuisine. Um, I guess we'll start with a little bit of background. And Sarah, wh- where did you start cooking in New York? Uh, funny, enough, I was talking to Jimmy Carbone, and um, which one was it? Uh, Fifty Carmine or
2: no? That was Patio Dining. Oh, okay, but I actually came to New York in '99 to work at a restaurant in the East Village that's still there yeah. called Ecopi. Um, which is a sweet little Tuscan place, and I was living in Italy and decided I needed to come to New York. Yeah. Um, And they needed a chef.
1: Where in Italy were you living?
2: Uh, I was living in Florence, actually. Yeah. Um,
1: And and is your background Italian coming from Italy, or is it...
2: No, I I was really fortunate. I grew up in Italy. My father was a foreign correspondent, and my parents bought a house that we still have in 1971 in Tuscany. Um, And... We lived in Rome in the 70s, and we still have the house, and we go back. And in fact, I'm tragically dismayed because we go back every November and harvest the olives and have a big feast and celebrate the pressing of the new oil. And oh, wonderful. I'm not going this year. tisk.
1: <laughs> and wait, so you do that, do you ever import it back into the country to use at your restaurants?
2: No, not really. It's a problem. I mean, we don't produce that much. We produce a little too much for the house and we're still trying to figure out how we can get it over here because it's not really quite enough i mean it's probably like three cases of olive oil or something we'd love to have it here for us but
1: (laughs) yeah just do it for sunday suppers (laughs) or something something exclusive
2: yeah i'd have to beat my brother off it.
1: yeah (laughs) (laughs) if you need to own a strong arm to bring that olive oil in i'm sure we can ask alex Uh, yeah (laughs) (laughs) and alex um Chiquito restaurant, El Quinto Pino, are inspired uh, by traditional Basque dishes, but you grew up where?
3: I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Minneapolis. And just a minor correction is that El Quinto Pino is actually a multi-regional tapas restaurant and Chiquito is the one that's all Basque. So um, we draw from all of Spain at El Quinto Pino and um, just uh, the Basque country at Chiquito.
1: Awesome. And a little bit about uh, your background, uh, both, you know, growing up and then cooking professionally.
3: Um, I grew up uh, in Minneapolis um, with uh, parents who uh, immigrated here from Argentina. So I grew up in very much in the Spanish language and uh, back and forth between... uh, Minneapolis and um, Argentina during uh, sort of extended breaks and vacations, and Argentina is just an interesting country because um, well, my parents are Argentinian Jews, <laughs> um, and there are a lot of them though people you know wouldn't really know it, and um, there's also a lot of Italians um, in Argentina, and there's also a lot of Basques and Galicians, and um, so the the food that I grew up with, the food that I thought was Argentinian soul food, like my soul food, um, were, were dishes that, you know, were called from all of those traditions. And um, and so there there were things, as I came to know Spanish food and, and Italian food and lots of other cuisines that I came across as a cook or as a traveler, um, I just found that I had, you know, a, a certain affinity, like a certain sort of um, innate... Um, like relationship to these these cuisines that, um, you know, I think cuisine is sort of like a language. And if you learn a language when you're young, you have an advantage. Yeah. And I guess I think that's what you know, what happened to me and probably what happened to Sarah.
1: Yeah. But with all these kind of mudded cuisines, you know, obviously creating a melting pot, um, you came to New York or came to cooking in what style of cuisine?
3: I moved to New York, um, uh, I moved upstate to go to culinary school and I had been living in Seattle for the last six years. And I was very, um, I, I, it's funny, I, w- I think I was very of the mind that a lot of New York restaurants are going now. I was really into like botanicals and, you know, wanted to make my own like soda pop <laughs> and wanted to like do a lot of this sort of um pea and and stuff and i've actually gotten away from that not for lack of desire it's more lack of energy because i think it's um those are really exhausting practices in, yeah. the, in new york unless you have a farm you know or some land upstate yeah and you know, i thought like everybody
1: had farms in new york right <laughs>
0: yeah that's so the much. goal yeah <laughs>
1: well what was interesting so sarah's new pasta restaurant um I asked, "Well, how many handmade pastas are you going to make?" And how many, Sarah?
2: <laughs> um, maybe one or two. I'm really into the dried pasta, and it's. I've I've seen this whole transformation of Italian food in in America and the appreciation of it. And I moved here in 1981 to go to high school, and the Italian food that I was pre- I'd never really thought about what I ate, and the Italian food I was presented with just bore absolutely no. um It didn't look like anything I'd ever seen before. I didn't understand it. It didn't taste good. It didn't make any sense to me at all. And then in the sort of early 80s, everybody got really interested. Like, northern Italian food became the thing, right? Oh, oh, that stupid Italo-American food. That's like peasant weird food. And now it's almost as people have worked their way through, they've rediscovered the South um, and rediscovered Italo-American food, which I personally... Don't like because it's all tied up with (laughs) being a teenager and coming back to America and being presented with that food as Italian What
1: were some of the first dishes that you did see that uh, Italo-American, which I had never heard that term before, but kind of love?
2: Well, spaghetti and meatballs. I'd never seen spaghetti and meatballs before. I'd never seen um, veal... Milanese with tomato sauce and melted cheese and a side of overcooked buttered noodles. And it's usually like with
1: Munster or something like that, right? Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it was also, you know, I think one of the things I've come to realize is the people who really kind of remember very fondly Italo-American food and growing up with it were eating Italo-American food in their house, which was probably made with care and decent ingredients. And the stuff that I ran into in restaurants was none of those things. Um, It was generally just slop and and crappy ingredients. And, you know, I grew up in the Mediterranean at a time when the Mediterranean was really kind of coming out of its utterly rural and agrarian um, existence. I mean, I'm horrified of some of what goes on in Italian food today. It's radically changed. But you couldn't eat a bad meal in Italy in the 70s. And, I mean, a great example is near our town... um, a town where my house is in Italy, you know, there's two weekly markets that we go to, and um, it used to be filled with people who grew their own vegetables, and it's no longer. It's filled with, it's still a market, and you wander around, and if peppers are in season, that's what you buy, but they're all going and buying it from a wholesale distributor of vegetables, and it's coming from all over Europe and all over Italy, and it's no more like that little lady who's got you know, eight chickens and she brings the the eggs in or, you know, she gathers some wild root weeds by the side of the road and sells them. And that was what the food was like growing up.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's, well, obviously, 20 years we've come cyclically back. Uh, exactly. But, I mean, do you see spaghetti and meatballs on Italian menus here that think that trad- they're traditional? and
2: Um, no, oh God. Uh, kind of. I mean... I think sometimes people have a hard time understanding. I searched for years for where this idea of spaghetti and meatballs came from. Yeah. And I did finally discover down in Puglia um, a dish. It was actually orecchiette, and it was served with meatballs, but they were they were teeny tiny. tiny. They were like thumbnail size.
1: Like little polpetti? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it did exist. It came from somewhere. and And my theory has always been, you know, that the... The immigrants from Italy, they came They came here because they were impoverished, and meat in Italy has always been expensive and hard to come by, and especially in the deep, deep south. Um, and meat was abundant and cheap here, and they just started throwing it in everything. Yeah. Um,
1: it's so back to back to seattle and alex's journey to new york uh coming you know being argentinian then going to the west coast and obviously seeing all that seafood and you know uh, foraging that wet forest you know mushroom and beautiful things when did you come to new york
3: i came in uh 97 i guess
1: yeah and where did you start working then
3: um well, I went to school and then i uh I was working at Quiltys Quilty. which is like a little sort of boutique restaurant that is no longer <laughs>
1: yeah uh, who was the chef at quilties Katie sparks it was yeah, and that was new American cuisine at its beginnings, correct
3: yeah, I don't know you know what um her I had not so much contact with her, so I didn't really know what motivated her. I just knew that I had had a, a really delicious meal there and, and wanted to work there, yeah. But and I thought it would have been refreshing to work for a woman chef.
1: Yeah, but I mean, when did you come and arrive at Basque as your cuisine?
3: Well, I still don't feel like Basque is um, sort of uh, my only cuisine. I'm really, um, I, I, I like it the best in 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 certain respects um, because I think it is a cuisine that um, someone who's been involved with making food for a long time, uh, it, it's it has no extra ingredients and no embellishment, and so I think that's like a very mature place to kind of go as a cook, and I feel like that's why um, I'm, not like this is the end of my career, but that's yeah. <laughs> why I feel like the more evolved I get, the more affinity I have for that kind of food. Um, uh, but um, I Became um, interested in traditional Spanish cooking when I um, took a job at Megas, which was a, a restaurant um, in Tribeca that uh, opened in
1: 1999. Yeah. And was that kind of like the influx of Spanish tapas into New York?
3: No, quite contrary, actually. Um, they were trying to open a contemporary Spanish restaurant in a climate where no one in New York or really in this country was really aware of what was going on in Spain at the time. And, you know, they didn't have a context. Um, there were all these very um, sort of, you know, Ibero-American restaurants, if you will, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, started out probably as sort of Galician standby restaurants. Um And, um, and devolved into serving like enchiladas on the same menu. (laughs) And, um, and so uh, I think that the owners of this restaurant make us wanted to open a kind of vanguard place, but there was no context for it. And, and as I started going back and forth to Spain, because I met my husband at that restaurant, and um, I started traveling a lot in Spain. I couldn't figure out why we didn't have an expression, a current expression of tapas. And that I, that, and I really believe that, that not only was tapas the most, you know, sort of interesting social tradition in Spain and so delicious, but the best way um, to sort of revive interest in um, traditional regional Spanish cooking was through the tapas tradition. And that was my, and I was very um, uh, deliberate in, in my intent to do that.
1: Yeah. And were there areas in Manhattan, in Brooklyn, in New York, or, you know, near the great state that you could actually find a Spanish enclave that was serving traditional food the way it should be served?
3: Well, the last part of that is probably, um, the I was going to say yes until you yeah. said <laughs> the way it should be served, because I think yeah. that was the same dilemma that, um, that Sarah was having. Like a lot of the things that you tasted had nothing to do with, what your expectation would be if you were coming from that country because um, because the the hand that was making it wasn't um, as deft or the ingredients weren't as good. But certainly, like, in Newark, there's a place called Casa Vasca, and there were, like, you know, there were some places here, but, again, it was, like, you know, like, if there was, like, a little Basque restaurant um, in, um, in Tribeca, it had paella and I like you would never go to a Basque restaurant with paella unless you were in the Basque country and it was a Catalan restaurant yeah you know somebody would open a Catalan restaurant in the Basque country because you know Basque's like paella but it's not a Basque dish
1: yeah so I mean it's really interesting that there was this transition from Italo dropping off American and actually having Italian food because prior to that it was kind of that duality of you know Region plus American creates new cuisine.
2: Well, I I struggle with, too, um, you know, there's this whole sort of premise that the America of the 50s and the 60s didn't have good ingredients and didn't have good produce. um, uh, But I'm not sure that I 100% buy that. Uh, I mean, my grandparents always had a garden. They certainly, you know, they were... Very New England, very American. Like, they weren't eating olive oil, for example. Yeah. But they had a garden. They picked fresh vegetables. I can remember sitting at my grandfather's table and eating the first lettuce that came out of the garden or the asparagus. Like, there was a recognition of what tasted good. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: so, I mean, I guess at a point we just lost space for that, and uh, right. we, we got purveyors.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, also, I'm not quite sure you know, what the reasons... I, I think the whole dining out has changed so much. What were the... You know, people eat out so much more, so maybe their expectations now, they want more of the food that perhaps they would have had in their homes, because they're not cooking it in their homes.
1: Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break, Uh, you know, take the food from the home to the hearth to the restaurant and talk a little about important ingredients that you can't necessarily find here to maybe recreate the regionality that you have in Rome or Basque Country. Uh, you've been listening to The Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Michael harland Turkell and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.com. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Sarah Jenkins of Porchetta Restaurant in New York and Alex Rehra. Right. Right. I knew it was one of those. I just was going to keep on going until you stopped me, of Chiquito, and I think I should spell that out too for listeners, T-X-I-K-I-T-O Restaurant in Chelsea and El Quinto Pino. Um, I don't want to forget what we were just talking about, Sarah was just divulging, uh, of, well, she wrote this amazing book with Mindy Fox called Olives and Oranges, um, which shows her knowledge of cuisine throughout the Mediterranean, uh, from Cyprus to where to Beirut. And she was talking about how in Beirut, uh, in the seventies during the civil war, a lot of the people that lived there ended up moving to Rome and she, a great quote that she just said uh, um, is that refugees end up cooking the food, you know, of, of their
2: of their home where they can't be. <laughs> exactly, it's, it's an expression of love in a in a way. Yeah. You
1: know? um, do you feel like you're doing that here in New York at this time?
2: Sure, I I probably try to bring a little bit of Italy into my life every day in my in my cooking.
1: Yeah, I mean, and Alex, do you feel like you put some? argentinian jew flavor into your food even though you we have a Basque do. restaurant yeah.
3: yeah totally i mean we have chimichurri on our cochinillo so yes i you know very much so um yeah a lot of a lot of um the sort of idiosync idiosyncrasies of yeah. of, of our cooking i think are where that blending happens, like that, where like little pieces of my childhood that are really particular to my mom, who's an extraordinary cook, uh, very self-taught natural cook, but really good, Um, you know, there's a lot of her touches that that show up. So,
1: do you think it's fair for restaurants to say that they are Italian restaurants or Spanish restaurants, or like you have on your website for Chiquito, inspired is a more appropriate term or influence or maybe just say the cooking of Sarah Jenkins because, I mean, it's such a, um, you know amalgamation of experiences, of, you know, feelings that you've had throughout the years.
2: Well, uh, one of the things, you know, I've been doing in this whole process of opening this new restaurant and designing it and planning how I wanted it to look and I, I think more than anything what I want it to do is evoke... An experience and evoke something without being a Disneyland recreation of it. I never wanted it to look like we picked up a restaurant in Italy and plopped it down in the center of New York because to me that's kind of ridiculous. Like we're not in Italy.
1: Yeah. Actually, I had designers on a couple episodes ago and one said you would never want to do that because of how ugly Italian restaurants are.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay. I'm going to argue that. But. I mean, it depends on the restaurant, yeah, I guess. Yeah. They, they go across the yeah. the range. Yeah,
1: but it's like lack of signage, lack of, you know, uh, advertising out front. That and that's ugly? No, no, not necessarily. <laughs> you just said it isn't the experience that most New Yorkers are used to. Right,
2: right, 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 right. Um, and it's it's the same thing, I suppose, with my food. I started out trying to actually, I mean, talking about refugees, when I, when I moved here as a teenager and I was kind of shocked by the food I was presented with. And I certainly couldn't afford to go out and eat in fancy restaurants. And there weren't really fancy restaurants serving good Italian food. Um, and that's how I kind of taught myself how to cook was because I needed to make the food I was used to. Yeah. Um, and I'm inspired by things. I, I, sometimes I come back to corn. Like, sweet corn is not an Italian ingredient. I don't think it's a Mediterranean ingredient. And yet, I use it when it's in season, and I make pasta dishes with it and things like that, because it's more honestly Mediterranean or Italian to me, to use something seasonal, local, uh, fresh, tastes the best, than to import some kind of radicchio or... I mean, we get squash blossoms here, but to, to, to import some kind of vegetable from Italy.
1: So it's more about the mantra than it is the actual ingredient sometimes. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Having said that, I couldn't cook without extra virgin olive yeah. oil. And yeah, that's And that, they're not going to make that locally here Well, it's like, I,
1: I couldn't survive without coffee and bananas. Exactly,
2: exactly. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I mean, Alex, some of the ingredients, like your smoked paprika, um, are really very relative to your cuisine but also to flavors that you want to provoke in your Mm -hmm. foods what are some ingredients that you import that you can't get here
3: i bring uh piquillo peppers olive oil uh, like sarah does we actually have a basque olive oil which is made in very very small production um uh some beans um Mostly like peppers and things like that. Peppers and pepper paste. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything. Anchovies. Yeah. That's the huge cheese. one for yeah. me. Uh, cheese for sure, but I I do that because they are available. But if they weren't available, I would, you know, grab a hard sheep smoked cheese and smoke it myself and create some variation of idiyatabal. Like, I think that, like, I would be forced to... Accommodate those flavors by um, sort of uh, manipulating the the ingredients that I did have available yeah. more. Um, but so I I would be comfortable, for example, having an American cheese plate that I either did something to or I just said if these cheeses were made in the Basque country, this is what they would be serving. Yeah. So that is a little bit less like, it, there are certain details. I mean, and this is like sort of what we were talking about with authenticity. There are certain details um, to every cuisine. I think that, that actually have that terroir kind of feeling like, and you know, the, it could be an ingredient or it could be a technique and it, it need not be both simultaneously. Yeah. But that, that really mark a cuisine and and make you know, really connect it to a particular landscape or a particular like sort of cultural tradition, I think.
1: Yeah. So does authenticity rely um, partially on, you know, inspiration to be able to, you know, have those new, well, not new, have those inherent flavor profiles, have those dishes brought forth with the limited amount of things that you have, rather than just trying to import everything and recreate in a second land.
2: Um, a, a little bit. I was having an interesting conversation with a woman called Naomi Duguid, who has written a lot of books about um, India yeah. and Southeast Asian That's cuisine. That's Jeffrey
1: Alford. And, yeah.
2: They're no longer together. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But they wrote a lot of great yeah. books yeah. together. And I was talking with her. You know, One of my problems with cookbooks about strange and exotic cuisines is, well, There's always all these weird substitutions. Like, I go back and I look at Diana Kennedy's early Mexican books, and there weren't, she didn't have, they didn't have the access to those ingredients here, and so she was forced to put in substitutions. But I want to know now that we have those ingredients here, what would they really do in Mexico? Mm -hmm. Um, And she had an interesting take on it, Naomi. She said, Well, what I always try to think about is what would that Burmese woman do in Minneapolis without all her ingredients. How would she recreate the dish and what would make it authentic to her? Yeah. And I think like you say, some of it's technique, um, some of it's ingredient. Some of it you kind of have to give up. Yeah. You
1: know? <laughs> what, what are dishes that you've given up on that you hope to have here that you just either can't find the substitute or get the product well, to you?
2: Okay, there's, there's some things like actually white truffles. Now is white truffle season. Everybody gets really excited about yeah. truffles. I hate truffle oil. <laughs> truffle oil is disgusting. Yeah. It's synthetic and it's, for the most it's part. It's synthetic too, yeah. for the most part. There's no way that you can actually bottle truffle aroma in oil seal it and preserve it and have that flavor be there without synthetic stuff and i'm not convinced that white truffles travel all that well actually and so there's certain things i would really like to eat only in italy in season and and white truffles is kind of one of them um fresh olive oil is something we don't get here you know uh I mean it's this incredible exciting time when the oil gets pressed and it's got this really distinctive, really crazy kick flavor and everybody in Tuscany is going nuts with all these dishes like that kind of focus on the olive oil, whether it's just straight up beans with this spicy, spicy oil or
1: yeah.
2: um grilled bread with garlic and, and olive oil. And then over time that changes. And we still here are lucky to get olive oil that's six months away from being pressed. Yeah. You know, that was pressed like what they're pressing now won't be here. Until January, with the uh, there's a little bit of an exception. You can find a few people that like like Beaujolais, bring it in. Oh my God, it's new, it's fresh. Yeah, but it's not around that much. And I'm horrified how many times I go into what I would consider gourmet shops and they're selling olive oil that's two or three years old. And it's not bad. Yeah, it doesn't have any flavor. Actually, yeah, I,
1: I was I never knew this up until a couple years ago. You pretty much only use the vintage that you're in.
2: In, in my house, we cook with the stuff that's a year old, and we garnish with the stuff that's that's of the year.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's it, it's so it's so odd to think that maybe a lot of terroirs loss on temporal things, you know, um, and then trying to import that. What is that ingredient inherently? You know, once it's taken out of, it's almost zeitgeist. Oh right.
2: Yeah. Well, they some of a lot of them do lose stuff. Yeah. Um. Which, again, is why I don't have, you know, Parmesan cheese, Parmigiano-Reggiano. It's made. It's, it's aged. It travels reasonably well. Although, still, uh, uh, one, one ingredient that I always eat when I go back to Italy. Um, well, actually, I used to always get porchetta because <laughs> you couldn't get that here. Um, <laughs> yeah, now
1: there's this nice little place on 7th Street, nice right? village.
2: Um, uh, is the local salty ham that they make. Uh, in my area, you know, and it's cured the same way prosciutto is, but it's not prosciutto di parma, and it's not prosciutto san daniele, and it's actually kind of rough um, and very salty, and that's a very particular flavor that I just don't find here. Yeah. I'm not even sure, it's not maybe the most refined flavor, mm-hmm. but it's very of the of the area to me.
1: Yeah. Are there those memories in your travels, and your cooking, Alex, that you've had and either attempted to bring back and failed or just want to experience and not have to incorporate into your cooking?
3: I actually live a a lot of my sort of dream life is sort of in my memory. And that is a lot of the stuff that um, inspires um, the kind of cooking that that we do. Um, So anytime I travel or anytime I am sort of in my head thinking about things usually it's inspired by an ingredient like there's a particular ingredient in season i'm like well what are we going to do with to showcase this thing because you know we need to have this or we're a basque restaurant we really need to sell (laughs) this particular ingredient that nobody values but us but but we need to sell it because we can't give it away um so what can i do to it that would really make people you know want to buy it and usually what i can do is tell a story um, and the story is about a really particular place or a little beach town where you have that one, like, you know, wood-fired sardine or that wild, you know, turbo or, um, you know, whatever it is. It's just – it's very specific. And if you share that story with somebody, um, both on the plate and, and sort of through your, your servers or through your staff – they somehow it's like they're sort of in it with you yeah and and that's where you're really sharing and that i think that sense of sharing it, it gets very like at least for me it's very um like it's special it's like a relationship yeah. and so you have your relationship to your own life and your relationship to the food and your ingredient and then your relationship to your with your customer and um I know it just sounds kind of cheesy, but that's oh, like, no, that's what makes a special place. And so you can talk about authenticity of flavor, but you can give somebody an inauthentic dish. And I'm not saying that we do that because I don't think we do. But uh, and they can have like a really authentic experience, like a visceral experience yeah. that they'll then take with them, And you become part of their sort of own personal food footprints or whatever because that's the one thing that everybody has is their own sort of culinary memory or their own and that's what makes a person like really unique like maybe a lot of people travel to the same place that Sarah traveled to but they didn't do it in the same order with the same taste memory like sort of this agglutination of of food memories in the same order you know like if she had been to Italy first and then to Beirut and that she might be a really different kind of cook or
1: have a your own relationship
2: with with those ingredients. Yeah. I'm, I'm always amazed, uh, you know, I think that I know Rome really well, and I know this certain area of Rome that I grew up in really well. And I remember a few years ago, a friend of mine going back there and finding this place that had clearly been there forever. Practically on the street I grew up on. I had never noticed it. And he took me in. And I kind of realized at that point, yeah, everybody has their own. There is no authenticity of experience because everybody's experience is authentic.
1: Yeah. I think, um, unfortunately, we're running out of time. But I really do want to touch on um, that sharing nature that you both have. And most specifically, uh, Alex has this series called Chocos um, at Chiquito where two chefs come together, collaborate. And you guys did um, one that's, about a year ago, right?
2: That's the beginning of the restaurant I'm about to open.
1: Oh, excellent. Yeah, yeah. Would, would you tell us a little bit about what you served that night?
2: I served pasta. You know, I had opened porchetta, what, oh, a year earlier, and I wasn't really cooking pasta at all, and I, I kind of missed it, and I liked it. And I thought it would be a fun thing to do kind of a pasta-tasting menu. Yeah. And we did it. And it sold really well, and it was a lot of fun. And Alex was like, "I think you should open a pasta restaurant." Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, it's We've from been <laughs> yeah. in a couple of weeks, right? And what's the uh, name of the
2: restaurant again? Porsena.
1: How do you spell that?
2: P O R S E N A.
1: Excellent. On Seventh Street, right near McSorley's,
2: four doors down. Yeah.
1: So stop by for dinner. Stumble for a couple of beers afterwards. <laughs> I just wanted to thank uh, both of you, Sarah and Alex, for evoking and inspiring not just cuisine but conversation about creating new you know footsteps as Alex said um, I hope you guys enjoyed and definitely stop by Porchetta Porcena Chiquito El Quinto Pino and see what these two wonderful women are up to um, just wanted to thank our sponsor again Acme Smoke Fish uh, Jack Inslee our producer Nat Weiner, our engineer Roberta's Pizza for you know letting us have this beautiful little studio in their backyard I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene, and hope to have you listening in every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Cheers.